which do you see as like the kind of the major challenge or the, the piece that in particular needs focus right now? So it was emitters with motivation and cash, storage in proximity, the right business model, or a another. Yeah, I think with with that list, I, I would most definitely start with the right business model. There are some extraordinary similarities between the CCS industry and the way it's evolving and the way the LNG industry started kind of 60 years ago. One of the challenges with CCS is that it requires considerable upfront capital. You know, you know there's a lot of pre-productive capital involved before you then get the revenue stream. And, and then the question is, well, how, how resilient is that re revenue stream? Well, welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And I'm joined today by two of Gaffney Klein's greatest. We have Nick Fulford, who um, some of you may remember has recorded with us before, and Mark Wilkie, who's Carbon Management Director, Nick being Senior Director of Energy Transition. And we're here to talk more generally about the evolution of the carbon capture and storage value chain. Um, in part because uh, Decarb Connect and Gaffney Klein had a collaboration around a report on this, which will be in the podcast notes, and you're welcome to download that. But, you know, that bluntly was uh, put together sort of late last year, early this, and things have already moved on at a pace. So we'll also be looking for kind of more uh, recent kind of perspectives and and uh, anything that the, the guys can share. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much, Nick, for for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to it. Good, good. So we'll start with my classic a lazy podcast person's question, which is to get my guests to introduce themselves. So Mark, as the a first timer on the podcast, perhaps you could give us your background and, and how have you arrived at this point in time, by which I mean personally, professionally, what, what's drawn you into this kind of work? Yeah, well, I've, uh, I've been in the energy sector uh, 25 years, 20 years, believe it or not, in in renewable energy uh, but it's been over the past five years um, started broadening to looking at decarbonisation so back in 2018 I uh, worked with um, Heineken leading their, their renewable energy programme and from that started to look at how we could maybe even increase that ambition to um, to get to net zero by 2030 and through that really started to to kind of come across some of the the major challenges of, of doing that, given the global footprint and, uh, you know, the nature of the business. Um, I joined Gaffney Klein in, in 2021. And that for me um, has kind of broadened, again, my, uh, my, my experience really, um, particularly into the area of carbon capture and storage, which really builds on on Gaffney Klein's kind of heritage in, in the oil and gas uh, sector. But uh, yeah, I'm currently um, looking at uh, really building that capability in carbon management for, for Europe, Africa, Middle East, for, for Gaffney Klein. And um, yeah, not just with our traditional clients, but also within the industrial sector. So yeah, this uh, this study we did with you is you know, really quite interesting to, to kind of understand more broadly how that fitted with um, with the industrial sector. Yeah. 
So for the, for the purposes of this, because as everyone will soon hear, we are three Brits, but Mark is representing the, as we heard there, the EMEA Africa uh, flag. And Nick, I'll come on to you. You're going to be waving the flag for North America, uh, or at least giving us that perspective. But for those that haven't um, heard our previous podcast, could you give that same sort of sense of what's brought you to this work uh, personally and professionally? And then and then we'll go on into into the main main body of the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Well, um, I can beat Mark by a couple of years. Believe it or not, it was 1983 I started working for British Gas. And for most of my career, it's been a story of gas and LNG in particular. But I think, um, so interestingly, um, at the point where Europe started to get uh, very picky about its LNG supplies and the carbon footprint, particularly France and a an LNG contract that was uh, disapproved by the French government, that provided a kind of a um, an incentive, a kind of a wake-up call to the LNG industry in the US that they needed to start thinking about carbon. And um, so in a way, it was that that sort of um, drew me into the uh, CCS space, you know, through, through LNG. But of course, you know, uh, since then, a whole range of industries um, ranging from sort of fossil fuel, petrochem, you know, right down to, um, you know, cement, iron, steel, etc., have become interested. So really the last three or four years has been uh, really quite a ride in the sense that we've gone from vague interest to how can I do something about this to money being put in and, and steel being uh, put together. So it's been an extraordinary journey and, and what I continue to find fascinating is it kind of, you know, it sort of develops on an almost daily basis. Yeah, that, that sort of reflects a lot of what we at the Decarb Connect team see as well in that when when I first built the business, I, I assumed it would be relatively slow moving. You know, a lot of these industries have a, a, a reputation for perhaps being slower moving, very well established, but actually the conversation around decarbonisation, the activity around it seems to be shifting every four to six months so that we're in such a different place than I would have expected three years ago when we when we launched. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. Thanks for those personal intros. And then, Nick, I'll, I'll come to you uh, just on Gaffney Kine. Can you just give it a kind of little oversight for those who aren't familiar with the business? We heard from Mark that, you know, you're moving into more of the industrial sectors as well. But what's the what's the background to the business and the main focus? Yeah, thanks, Alex. Well, Gaffney Kine, uh, sort of boutique energy consultancy, we've been around for 60 years now. So we've, we've been on quite a journey. And uh, throughout that time, you know, the company has kind of reinvented itself a few times as the industry requirements have changed. And um, that's very much the case at the moment that um, our traditional skills in oil and gas, particularly the sort of geoscience and the subsurface, that's the thing which um, equipped us to fairly quickly transition into the sort of CCS technology, particularly looking at the geological sequestration. And uh, we've always had a fairly strong facilities group as well, 
um, who are, you know, familiar with um, SMR, ATR, etc., in the context of gas processing, gas reforming. So really, sort of put those two technologies together, and you've kind of got a, a kind of ready-made CCS, um, you know, uh, practice. So we've been able to sort of utilize that to get a little bit of a head start. And um, now, you know, I was in the Singapore the office office the other day, and um, you know, between Singapore, Houston, London, the the amount of resource that we're spending now on CCS and energy transition work is uh, really quite significant. It's probably probably almost half what we're doing at the moment, I would say. So uh, that's really how we got into it and how we've developed from the sort of geoscience through to the sort of full value chain for CCS. Okay, thanks for that that kind of background. So we are here to talk about the evolution of the CCS value chain. I mean, there's no getting away from it. Wherever you sit in the politics of climate, <laughs> CCS is, is a key part of the discussion. You're either in the camp that sees it as the central, middle, essential ground, or perhaps it, other companies or other other points of view see it as the the big question mark, the big problem. But we are here to talk about the, the fact that the CCS value chain is evolving, you know, wherever you sit in your political views on it, uh, deals are being done, business models are being formed. So so we'll get into that. And maybe, Mark, I'll start with you on this question, which is, you know, we use this word evolution for a purpose. You know, it does feel like the not just the value chain, but the activity and the narrative and the discussions around CCS really are evolving. I'm wondering what what shifts have you seen, perhaps even since you've come into Gaffney Klein, um, and and particularly in the kind of more more recent uh, months. What 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 is it that you're seeing, hearing, sensing is is evolving? Well, I think it's a good question. And you know, CCS as as a concept has been around you know, quite a number of years. It, it's seen a few kind of false dawns. But I think the general sense is that things are really moving. But you know, first of all, one of the key evolutions is from an application perspective. So what we have seen up until, I'd say, fairly recently, the last few years, dominant application for, for CCS was really for enhanced oil recovery. So that was taking CO2 principally from uh, natural gas uh, processing plants and injecting that into a, into a hydrocarbon reservoir to, to improve the, the flow of oil. What we are seeing fundamentally now is a complete shift in terms of the, the CCS projects that are being developed today to actually permanent sequestration of that CO2, which is fundamentally different. So really locking that CO2 away permanently on the ground. In parallel with that, there is also the U to CC US utilization. So there is work going on. I'd say relatively small scale, but there are technologies and applications being developed. So I think first of all, application is one key evolution point, and that that is pretty pretty clear. The second one, I think, is probably scale. In in terms of scale, I mean in terms of volumes of, of CO2. So probably with the odd exceptions like uh, Sleipner up in, up in Norway, uh, which stores, I think it's about a million tonnes per annum. Um, by and large, most of these projects are relatively small scale, you know, kind of less than, less than a million, less than half a million. What we're seeing now today are these clusters, these hubs um, being established. And 
the purpose of those are really to to bring together multiple um, emitting sectors to bring scale um, so to bring volume to increase um, utilization of, of these pieces of infrastructure and therefore to bring economies of scale and I think the third evolution is really the um, the, the element of, of funding and financing and I think that is by and large, a recognition, certainly politically, by a number of countries that CCS is by no means the silver bullet. I don't think anybody who works in the sector uh, believes that, but it does have a fundamental role. And if we are to get to net zero, it will have to play a role. And that is not just about decarbonizing um, uh, CO2 sources from burning of, of fossil fuels, that is about capturing process uh, CO2 from things like cement manufacturers. So if we want to continue using cement, we're going to have to, in some form, have an amount of CCS. So for me, I think the, 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 the key kind of piece of evolution over the past three years is probably application, so move towards sequestration, scale. It, it's, it's rapidly growing and we see it continuing. And then support, so policy and, and financial support to, 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 to underpin that. Um, and I think with that, we're kind of seeing a next phase of evolution, which was, I guess, part of the discussions in, in the report was around you know, commercial models and so on. That, that again, to me, is a, as an indication of how things are maturing. We're, we're kind of moving away from these pilot projects, these uh, sort of largely government-funded, sponsored projects, into a world where actually there is an expectation in the not so distant future that this becomes a, a utility and there are um, uh, you know, evolutions in, in terms of commercial models and, and how this can help again bring down costs and improve access yeah and Nick from your from your seat in Houston which is obviously the epicenter of all things energy in the US I mean the last few months have seen a real sharp change in energy, I would say, around this, or at least that's what it looks like. How, how does it feel to you? And yeah, what what have you seen in that, again, around that kind of idea of how the value chain is evolving? Mm. I couldn't agree more, Alex. It's, uh, you know, the last, um, yeah, the, the last six months even has seen this extraordinary sort of um, extrapolation in, in activity and ultimately it's to do with sort of three things you know one one more general and another specific and you know one is the change of administration in the us and the adoption of a much more sort of carbon centric um, federal policy and then following on from that uh, we've got the infrastructure bill which has introduced um, Department of Energy grants, um, different tax treatments and so forth. And then we've got the Inflation Reduction Act, which has significantly bumped up the uh, tax credits under 45Q. And um, essentially it's created this kind of pot of, pot of free money effectively, which um, developers and, you know, people like private equity players can, you know, sort of leverage and, and do what they will. And um, the result is uh, both a kind of an engineering wave of activity where the geology is being investigated much more. People are kind of drilling and uh, creating 
you know, projects. And then the other aspect of it, which I find fascinating, is that for each of these projects, you know, you've got your engineering team of geoscientists, engineers, you know, process folks and what have you. And then you've kind of got this other team in the background who are, you know, kind of Harvard MBAs, they're finance people. And behind the scenes, they'll assemble a kind of a revenue package, which might be 45Q, it might be California low carbon fuel standard, might be selling a product into Europe to get the kind of ETS bump. And um, behind the scenes, they're creating this kind of web of, of revenue mechanisms, partly out of the federal government initiatives and partly out of the international ones to create some really quite robust financials behind some of these CCS projects. So it's this kind of two-pronged attack of, um, you know, the technology and the engineering coupled with these very ingenious ways of creating revenue. That kind of partly maybe goes to answer my my next question, which is how, how does this look and feel different between US, Canada, Europe, Asia? I mean, it, definitely feels from a recent couple of events we've run in the States, very, very much in line with what you've just said, Nick, that the conversation is all about, show me the money, what's the business model? And it's just a very commercial discussion. In Europe, it feels, I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, but I suppose because we don't have the same kind of tax equity structures or things like that, I don't know, it just feels like a very different conversation. So, Mark, I wonder like, if you were going to characterise the conversations you have in, in Europe, um, well, how does it differ from what, what we're sort of seeing and describing about North America? I think, first of all, if you, if you look at the regulatory framework, I think um, both within the US and Europe, um, the environmental aspect of these projects are, are regulated in slightly different ways. But I think the key difference is probably from the economics um, and financial perspective. So within, within Europe, um, these projects really are um, are being sponsored directly by uh, by the governments. So, you know, within Northern Europe, we have the UK, Denmark, Norway, uh, the Netherlands, all pushing ahead with their various programs. And yeah, in some cases, those governments are taking a stake in those projects through through equity, or indirectly, they you know, they're obviously putting money into that those projects and sharing uh, risk. And I think as a consequence of that, um, economically, uh, the, the, the European projects are, are, are more heavily uh, regulated to ensure that obviously the, that the government's money is, is being well spent. But it also creates a potential set of challenges in terms of developing those projects. And you know, again, we've, we've kind of seen that uh, within, within the UK in terms of the pace uh, of development. Um, if you compare that with the U.S., as you say, you know, the, 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 the private capital market's really been encouraged to, to participate. And it's, you know, it's, it's very clear um, what the potential sources of revenue are for those, for those projects. So I think, you know, for me, the, the kind of key distinctions are really um, how, how the European projects um, are being sponsored and also as a consequence of that. How heavily they're they're being regulated, but I think you know what we are seeing also is almost a, a version two or an expectation there will be a version two of this, with a you know realization that if CCS is going to be part of the solution, then it has to scale, and you, you're you're just not simply going to scale it 
quickly enough to to enable it to have a have a role and so i think there is a there is an expectation that the model that exists today will have to start to somehow evolve um, towards more of a, a merchant uh, model less you know a regulated uh, model and you know, although the us is kind of seen as a has been very successful uh, in terms of creating interest you know also it, it, it isn't without its challenges but I, I think we're still yet to kind of come up with what is the you know the ideal ideal model i think ultimately you know in terms of vision if ccs is to become successful it, it effectively needs to become another utility you know it needs to be good value for money it needs to be readily accessible and you know the integrity and the safety of it you know cannot cannot be in question and i think you know that that ultimately is the vision now how do you get there from an industry which is literally just starting and requires quite substantial amounts of capital and state backing to, to make it possible. You know, there is you know, there is quite a, a journey and quite a, an evolution that has to happen. And um, I, I'm going to address this question to Nick, uh, but Mark, do jump in. But Nick, you were saying before we came on, you'd been in Singapore recently. We're not we're not talking a lot about Asia today as a region in this, but I just wondered, what's your sense of the conversation there because you know much less well developed far fewer projects in development but what's what's the kind of tone or the level of interest in this kind of uh well particularly that the sequestration kind of hub or cluster uh, opportunity versus point source capture what's your sense of that well um this my sense is that um interest is very high indeed uh there's and, and interestingly, there's a number of um, Asian companies who are quite actively in, investing now in CCS in the US and Canada um, for, for the very reason, a little bit like the shale gas boom, you know, 10, 12 years ago. It, it's seen as this kind of hotbed of activity where people can learn and then take that learning and technology back to their own jurisdiction. Um, one of the interesting differences between Asia and um, what's going on in the US is that when you think about the transport side of the transport and storage, you have to sort of put aside your preconception of a pipeline network and start thinking marine. Because, you know, if you look at Japan, Singapore, you know, many of the other sort of um, strong Asian economies, which have a sort of material CO2 uh, output to be dealt with, um, the sequestration opportunities are very limited indeed. So many of these countries are looking much more proactively towards marine export and cross-border transactions compared to you know the US or Europe. So that's one of the differences. The other factor, of course, is that many of these countries are big energy importers, and you know they're thinking about how to potentially import gas. Um, process it, you know, export CO2. And on an industrial scale, uh, clearly, you know, there's the potential for, you know, um, CO2 hubs and uh, a more sort of coordinated mechanism to enable some of the more hard to abate sectors to benefit from that economy of scale. So a very different set of drivers, but, um, you know, a lot of interest, a lot of, um, keenness to kind of learn and think how to deploy the technology in their own country. 
I think I think as well with Asia Pacific in general, um, the the carbon market is is still relatively immature. There's um, there is obviously voluntary carbon market within within Australia, but outside of China, um, you know there isn't much materially of a of a compliance carbon market. So I think you know first of all that that is a that is a challenge for you know development of many projects there. But I think also what you see um, within within Asia Pacific is a number of the national companies um, taking the lead on developing at least an initial. Um, demonstration project, um, and in the absence of you know, carbon pricing and maybe some of that regulatory and policy framework, which is being laid out elsewhere, and is kind of the foundation blocks really for you know, for, for development of some of these more advanced markets. Uh, you see the NOCs taking the lead, but I, I think you know particularly within Asia Pacific, one of the really interesting areas is is Australia. Um, so I think we saw this week actually Santos. Uh, signed off on four uh, agreements for um, storage of, uh, of CO2 through their Bioundan uh, project, which is um, up in the North Northern Territory. So they're looking to um, take CO2 and inject it into a depleted gas field in, in Timor-Leste. Um, and yeah, they're, they're largely leveraging uh, you know, voluntary carbon market, the ACU system in Australia. But again, I think it, it kind of exemplifies the importance of having the, the policy and regulatory framework as the as the foundation block. You kind of need that in order to set the ground rules and uh, to kind of minimize the risk um, investment and uh, you know, long-term kind of ownership and operation of these projects. And Australia has managed to, you know, to implement that, albeit kind of state by state. So I think, I think. You know, as, as Nick says, the you know, the transboundary element is really interesting and shipping, um, and I think seeing how some of these countries within the Asia Pacific are beginning to to lay out the sort of policy and regulatory framework will also be interesting. So we also got Indonesia uh, beginning this year um, indicated that they would start to encourage the the storage of CO two, which has been a kind of a complete switch from completely outlawing. You know. Okay, slight slight shift then. We'll go back to the, the kind of starting premise, which was this report that we uh, put together um, and worked in partnership with you on. And one of the things that we'd been sort of pushing for from particularly from the partly the industrials, but also from some of the project developers was a sense of what's we 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 mapped out the opportunity, we mapped out the interest, but what were the the blockers? Um, or more positively, <laughs> what were the key elements that we needed to to really come together for for the value chain to, you know, come to full fruition? So things that that came back from that were we need emitters with a real motivation who are willing to make those upfront um, commitments. We need storage in proximity, although based on our uh, off-air discussion before this I'm interested to see whether you challenge that um, and then the right business model so if I can I'll come back to you Nick of those three or is there another which do you see as like the kind of the major challenge or the, the piece that in particular needs focus right now so it was emitters with motivation and cash storage in proximity the right business model or a another yeah, I think with with that list, I, I would most definitely start with the right business model. I, I mentioned at the start of the podcast that a lot of my kind of background and career has been in LNG, and there are some extraordinary similarities between 
the CCS industry and the way it's evolving and the way the LNG industry started kind of 60 years ago. And um, one of the challenges with CCS is that um, it requires considerable upfront capital. You know, you know there's a lot of pre-productive capital involved before you then get the revenue stream. And, and then the question is, well, how, how resilient is that re revenue stream? For two reasons, really. You know, one is that um, as with early LNG, it requires a very strong balance sheet and, and a very strong sort of credit um, element all the way along the value chain from the emitter through the transportation, through the storage entity. Because, because of this deployment of capital and because of the revenue risks and, and so forth in terms of this very long-term cash flow that's required. Um, so, so that's one um, similarity. And if you look at, even if you look at 45Q or, or some of the other mechanisms, um, they're not, they, they don't necessarily go into the long-term. Even 45Q has a finite period to it, which is often not really enough to, to properly support the business case. So you kind of have to believe that some element of regulatory support or, or, or tax credit or something will continue indefinitely in order to get to the economics. And, you know, there are, there are some investors who are so convinced in, in the determination of global societies to address CO2 that it's, well, whatever it costs, it'll have to be paid for. And then there are others who look at it and say, well, the whole industry is supported by government funds and subsidies, which could be switched off at any moment, given the sort of current fiscal crisis that most governments are encountering. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to invest. Um, and then the other element of it, which again is a little bit like LNG, is that most of the CCS projects which are being built at the moment are relatively confined. It's maybe one big emitter and, and a sequestration site. Um, and very rapidly, I think that business model is being exposed as being, you know, somewhat um, vulnerable because you've, you've, you've got, you know, an emitter and a storage entity who depend on one another entirely for, you know, a resilient cash flow. So that's why the industrial hubs, um, the, the larger scale projects are coming in. Um, but creating that sort of market in CO2 is going to take some time. And, and until that happens, there is going to be these sort of very big exposures which people suffer from. But obviously, you know, the other factors, um, you know, are highly important as well. And maybe I should let Mark uh, continue the answer and carry on with that. It's very difficult to, to kind of... <laughs> To, to pick one, I know that that's the uh, that's the question, but I think one of the challenges is that it is actually a multifaceted uh, uh, problem or challenge, let's say. Um, so I think you, you're really the, the biggest challenge. I think is bringing together each of those facets at the right time. So from a commercial perspective, um, there's there's also huge coordination risk, not only along the the, the, the CCS value chain between the the emitter, the transportation, and the and the storage, but it also requires 
quite an amount of coordination between each of the emitters to to commit to being part of a of a cluster and ultimately to to, to, to have sufficient volume to to, to make that viable um, and I think you know the even with some of the more mature projects in terms of development um, you know, we see questions around how risk and liability can be uh, commercially uh, managed and I think again that's where government is not only a, a bank but it, it also can provide the, the guarantees uh, and the assurance uh, to, to, to the to the investors and the the operators uh, necessary to, 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 to be able to to make this a you know a viable um, project so I think that you know that the challenges the challenges even for the projects that are going through development at this point are addressing the commercial model, the potential risks and, and liabilities, and then ultimately the, the coordination between each of the, the various parties along the value chain and in proximity to, to those hubs and clusters, which is really necessary in order to make these viable whole projects. Okay, well, on to the, the next big piece of the puzzle then, which is the financing um, required to get uh, whether it's a small or a medium or, or some of these mega hub projects off the ground. what What is your sense um, of the appetite for investment and finance for, for these sorts of projects? Um, Nick, I'm going to come back to you. Um, I'm kind of interested in, uh, in your kind of thoughts on in the US. Obviously, we see the rise of the tax equity investor or rather the rise, at least in CO2 terms, of a tax equity investor because they were always there in renewables. But I, I wondered what what's your sense of appetite for investment, and um, yeah, and then I'll come back to you, Mark, on on other regions. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I think that I would start that question with the comment that there are sort of two strands of um, incentive for financial institutions to to invest. <clears throat> you know, the first is obviously you know pension funds, infrastructure funds, etc. That that whole role is to invest in these long-term projects and um, you know benefit from the the long-term cash flow <clears throat> so the, there's a kind of a quantitative element where you know there's a very hard-nosed look at the economics and whether it's a, a an appropriate project to lend to but then there's the other element which is the sort of ESG side and um, certainly for many of the European banks and, and traditional sources of funding for big energy infrastructure, there's this uh, tremendously strong motivation to shift their investment portfolio away from carbon intensive fossil fuel projects to, you know, um, carbon related infrastructure that they can sort of uh, champion as part of their investor relations and their ESG strategies. And the result of that is that you know if i look at the lens through which you know a typical investor will look at a ccus project and the lens that they would have traditionally have used for a oil or gas project it's very very different so tolerance to risk is much higher um, expectations of returns is significantly lower at least at the moment and the result is that projects which normally uh, wouldn't see the light of day because of the risk and the um, 
requirement for capital um, are actually being tolerated and up to a point and and you know obviously people aren't betting the farm on on this but up to a point there's an acknowledgement that um, it's it's an emerging sector um, equally you know some of the financial institutions are sort of looking at it thinking well this looks like it could be a trillion dollar business and we'd better not left, get left at the starting gate for, through not having invested. So there is this um, very forgiving environment at the moment for CCS, which is great for the industry because it's, it's helping to get things moving. Um, but in time, of course, that will tighten up and a very much more robust set of criteria will be applied. So that's, that's kind of how I see it at the moment. I mean, I think particularly within you know, Europe, uh, uh, Middle East, and to an extent Asia Pacific, um, just the, the the limited number of projects means there's actually a shortage of projects rather than a shortage of capital. I think you know the conversations we've been having with with lenders who have a mandate to um, you know to support energy transition projects, they're they're really short of projects, and I think that that is definitely the case. Um, certainly within Europe, um, and again, I think it just comes back to, to how the, the 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 sector is being supported. Um, I think that will that will change, that will evolve, and as as I guess as the state kind of rolls back and it becomes uh, uh, maybe a more kind of open uh, commercial model, there'll be a, a greater opportunity for investment projects. I think within the the Middle East, the projects we're seeing there are largely being financed uh, off balance sheet. Um, by the by, the national oil companies, um, not exclusively. So that you know they are also entering into joint ventures. But again, you're relatively few uh, projects um, which don't really require um, uh, support from the from the, the, the private capital market. And I think that is in complete contrast to what we've seen in the US, where, as Nick said, we've got kind of virtually every range of investor from equity investors, institutional investors, banks, um, looking to see how they can support this. Um, and then Asia Pacific, I, I think, again, uh, just a reflection of the, the relatively few number of projects. It's probably too early to say, um, but you know, most of those projects are, are being funded um, really by the, the, the oil and gas operators that are developing the, the storage and the uh, transportation infrastructure. So I think um, yeah, I'd go along with with um, sort of Nick's uh, Nick's analysis, but I, I think it's probably too early to say what the appetite is more broadly uh, until we kind of get through this first phase of just establishing the you know, the the the, uh, the initial pieces of infrastructure and the the market can scale. So so Nick, so we we've talked about evolution of um, the value chain from that point on financing through to who's getting involved, the business models and so forth. What, as we sort of close out this discussion, what would be, well, two things. One is what's your sense of over the next year? What are you expecting to see in the next round of change? We've said that this is conversation, a sector, a, a range of technologies, projects that are changing all the time. What do you expect to see in this next phase? And then is there a call to action or whether that's a group or a kind of type of activity that you think is needed to push this forward? Well, very briefly, uh, I kind of see those two questions as, as being linked in a way because um, 
the as as I look at the means of you know controlling carbon and 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 moving to this lower carbon world, you've got the um, you've got the sort of CCUS school of thought, which is well we have these carbon intensive industries which need to be abated, um, and then there's the kind of visionary school of thought which is well. It's all very well doing this CCS, but at the end of the day, we need to move to hydrogen and, and, and completely green fuels. But, you know, the reality is that CCS technology is proven. In, in many cases, the technology has been around for years and it's a very um, deliverable strategy, which has a material impact on, um, on carbon emissions. So, so for me, um, the the next year i think uh, might see an increasing recognition of that as the difficulties of a complete switch to carbon free fuels um, start to become better understood the costs become better understood and so in terms of the call to action um, i think it it very much is um, trying to get a, a clearer strategy going moving forward, which perhaps places more emphasis on CCS and, and actually delivering carbon abatement technologies, as opposed to debating about these long-term visionary strategies, which, which may, you know, probably will ultimately get delivered, but, you know, it's not something that's deliverable right now. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. And Mark, your chance to close us out. What's your sense again on the kind of, the, yeah, the, this kind of short range future, what you're expecting to see and, and again, a, a call to action or what you think is needed to, to really kind of keep stepping forward? Yeah, I think, I, I think there's general acceptance that CCS has a, has a role to play. I think as we kind of briefly discussed before the podcast, it, at the end, it is, it is a piece of infrastructure. It is going to take some time to develop and to implement as with any infrastructure. The additional challenge we've got on top of that is it's obviously an entirely uh, new type of, of infrastructure. So I think even if we're looking, when we talk about short term, I think even if we're looking at the short term of 10 years, let's say, we, we really need to be taking steps right now uh, to move on those, those initial projects because it's gonna take so long um, to, to, to see those through to, to, to fruition. I think you know, through the lens and through the looking specifically at the, the European market, uh, I think the, 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 the kind of medium-term challenge is really how do we shift from what is really a handful of uh, projects and, um, and, and really leverage those to, 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 to create a, a market that is big enough um, to take emissions from the from the region and do that quickly enough and um, so i think the big challenge is how do we move from the the, 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 the the funding structure we've got today into something that is more commercial and enables more participation from other investors yeah well speaking on i guess broadly on behalf of members that we work with i know that what the industrials need is kind of a combination of exactly what you said they need that clarity on cost business model and yeah when will it when will it be a utility versus a project that takes up a lot of time and resource and has all this risk and you know not knowing this associated with it so i 
but but as I as I said at the beginning to Nick, you know, I feel like this conversation in general around decarbonisation, but particularly around CCS, seems to shift gears every four to six months. So uh, by the next time we meet, let's say in a year's time, I'm sure we will have gone through a further two or three iterations in in all the regions we've been talking about. Um, but thank you, Nick. Thank you, Mark, for for joining me today. It was a real pleasure to see you both and to hear from you both. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. At Jano Media, we recognise that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography, or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform, and inspire. Reach out to us today. Thank you.